The following Truth Barista podcast is a high beam ministry production. My parents were agnostics, and we, we didn't talk about God, but we were very involved in synagogue life. I went to Hebrew school, I went to Jewish summer camp, and I looked up into the sky and thinking to myself, God, what are you? Are you a force of, or are you a spirit? I don't know who you are. I was really anxious about the future. I was really nervous. And I just started looking for answers. Why am I here? What's the purpose of my life? I started studying all kinds of religions, Buddhism, Hinduism, Confucianism, Zoroastrianism. I guess I just felt like the answers I was looking for, I hadn't found within Judaism, so I had to look outside. But what I found was they were so esoteric, they were so heavenly-minded that they weren't of any earthly good. There was no way that I could really put them into practice in my life. While I was going through this search, one of my Jewish friends came to me. We went to lunch, and a woman sat down with us at lunch. And we talked, and then this woman turned to me and she said to me, Do you know Jesus? Is he your Messiah? I looked at her and I looked at my friend and I was about to start screaming and yelling at her. How can you believe in that stuff? That's all malarkey. It's all fairy tales. It's all nonsense. And then all of a sudden, I heard a still small voice. And the voice said, Listen to her. She loves you. She's your best friend. So I, I listened to her, and she told me her story. And so at that luncheon table with hundreds of people around us, I just prayed a very simple prayer. And um, I invited Jesus to come into my life. All of my fears about the future just completely vanished. Welcome to the Airzats Coffee Shop. This is Jay, the Truth Barista, and I'm serving up a steaming cup of God's truth for the average Joe. You can catch us on our website at thetruthbarista.com, and we're going to talk about culture, current events, personal questions, quandaries, even faith in light of God's truth. This is good stuff, isn't it? <laughs> you guys, I tell you, is that all you do all day is drink coffee? You know, as Jay the Truth Barista, I do. I sit in the booth all day long. I don't. You know I work back there. Well, yeah, I Gee. guess. But you know you brought your friend Trevor with you again? Yes, I did. Hi, Trevor. Hey, Jay. And he's got a big cup, too. I mentioned free coffee the last time. Notice he brings in that 44-ounce, like... I know. I know. Oh, my well, gosh. what can you say? Okay, so fill him up at least two pots full, and we'll get underway. Hey, when we ended last Friday, we were talking about when a Jewish person comes to faith in Jesus, there are some real family struggles that go on. Could you elaborate on that a little bit? Sure. From maybe from personal experience or others that you've spoken yeah. with? Yeah, there definitely can be. I mean, the way that a Jewish person sometimes sees coming to faith or believe that Yeshua is the Messiah, they see that if you do that, you're no longer Jewish. Actually, I believe it was Pew Research that did a poll a few years ago where 36% of Jewish people said that if you you believe Jesus is the Messiah, you're still Jewish. So that means that 64% said that you are not. And so this can obviously create difficulty. It's hard for a family to deal with that this person no longer identifies with us. This person is no longer part of us, but now they're separated. So that can create a lot of animosity. What we typically find is while there might be initially some kind of disconnect from the family, given time, more often than not, the family comes around and realizes that they love this 
this child. This child maybe has changed for the better. This person is, you know, is loving them. And so, so often those relationships are reconciled in time, not always, but often. And in my situation, my family always thought I was crazy. So believing in Jesus just confirmed it for them. And, uh, and, <laughs> well, isn't that true for us all? <laughs> and, and they were happy that uh, I was no longer involved with bad living. I was involved with, with the drinking and the drugs and things of that nature. So they were kind of okay with so it. So at really. least it's not that yeah, bad. Yeah. yeah <laughs> yep. okay. and, and then from their perspective, and I've heard this from them, well, that's good for you, honey, right? And that's, uh, and, but, but that they still see it as not something for themselves. Do you remember the movie The Jazz Singer with Laurence Olivier and Neil Diamond? Yes. And course. there's that point where Neil Diamond says, I'm going to marry this woman, and Laurence Olivier, as his Jewish father, tears his lapel and says, you are dead to me. Give Larry some insight of what was going on at that moment. Yeah, yeah, that's actually historically something that happens. I have a great-grandfather that married a Norwegian Lutheran woman, and when this happened, they held his funeral because, to them, he was dead now because he had married a non-Jew. This is a historic practice that would go on within within Judaism. After time, you know, they still see him, so it's hard to see him as dead, and they did uh, kind of accept him back and, of course, loved his wonderful wife, but uh, that's what often happens within the Jewish community. So, yeah, the, the Even idea... Even still of, today? Uh, yeah, of specific religious groups, sure, of course. But, uh, you know, most Jewish people, like any nationality, are not religious, the majority of. So, yes, it, it would be rarer. 56% of all American Jews marry non-Jews in America. So, so it's rarer. But in religious communities, those things definitely could still happen. You know, it's interesting. That brings to mind some of the discussions you and I have had, Amazing Larry, about Christians in name only. You know, we call ourselves or they call themselves Christians, but you look at their lives and you go, you're not really living like a Christian. And and it's funny, we're coming up to the political season and you hear a lot of politicians who are saying, oh yes, I, I pray for the president daily and I know that God would support my position and I'm looking at this person's position and then I look at what the Bible says, I'm going, no you don't. You're just absolutely 100% against what God is saying. How dare you say that? That is such a lie. But that really is a dichotomy in the Christian community, people who take the name but don't live it and they don't learn it. I mean, really, it's just a religious ritual that they go through because it's cultural. It's not a fundamental trust in God. Correct. And you get the same kind of thing in the Jewish community? Yes, absolutely. And I think that that's actually a really good description there. Yeah, so where somebody might be seen as not being Christian, even though they're calling themselves that, that's how the Jewish community would look at me. Because my primary rabbi is not anyone that I'm reading about in the Talmud or not anyone that's teaching in any synagogue currently, but it's actually Yeshua, Jesus. Because of that, uh, they see it as something radically different. But unfortunately, I mean, it's really the thing that the Lord has called us to as a people group from the very beginning. So Trevor, do you study the Talmud? Do you study things of the writings of the Jewish community in order to relate to them? Yeah, absolutely. Actually, when when we go through the book of Isaiah, I, I like to use nothing but historical Jewish teachings and writings in order to show that Jesus is the promised Messiah. So it's a powerful tool. I mean, there's there's things in ancient Jewish writings, like you said, the Talmud. The Talmud is a uh, ancient historic writing, probably culminating 
dated somewhere around the third century. Yep. And the, what it is, is for the Jewish people, they see it as the oral Torah, meaning that when Moses came down with the law, he didn't just come down with the written law, the written Torah that we read in the first five books of the Bible, but he came down with this oral tradition that was only passed down to certain people throughout generations and eventually written down. It's kind of a, a silly concept considering the Torah itself says, where God says to Moses, write everything that I tell you. And so the the idea that there's something addition to that doesn't make sense. But anyway, it's an important historic writing because what it does is it shows Jewish thought, development of Jewish thought, and historical Jewish beliefs. And one of the things actually that we read about in the Talmud, and this has since been changed in rabbinical Judaism, but I like showing people this, is in the Talmud it actually quotes Isaiah chapter 53 as referring to the Messiah, son of David. Not the nation of Israel. Correct. So it is a historic Jewish belief. And this is something that we often like to show Jewish people through their own writings is your beliefs has changed. And it's clear through going through the ancient scripture. There's a book called the Targum, which is an Aramaic translation of the Hebrew scriptures. And it was something that was passed down orally for many years. But in the introduction to Isaiah chapter 53, it says, my servant, the Messiah. So in the more ancient sources that we go to, we can see that at least it was a understanding of the Jewish people in the first century. So something that I always point out is why, if this historically was a possible understanding for what this is referring to, do we today tell people that absolutely it can't be? This is one of the things that really excites me because in my recent studies, I read through a book by Daniel Boyarin who talks about Jesus and the belief. I mean, to me, I think this is one of those books every Christian who has an interest in Judaism should have besides Marvin Wilson's Our Father Abraham. But Boyarin in his book points out, he goes, oh yeah, the Jews back in Jesus's day did have a an understanding of a divine human being because one of the charges is you can't be human, you can't be God in the same thing. You can't be a divine human. Well, that's what the Son of Man is in the book of Daniel because you have one who is a human being who is unlike anything else in heaven and he's standing right next to the throne of God and the writers of that day, 400 years leading up to Jesus says, aha, there's a divine human being. He's called the Son of Man and he's going to come and get God's kingdom started on earth. He's the agent to make this happen. Well, one of Jesus's favorite designation for himself is son of man. And this is what put Caiaphas on his ear. And as I've shared in the past from this book is, when you say, what's Jesus' humanity? They say, son of man. And you go, what's his divinity? And they say, that's the title, son of God. Boyarin says, that's absolutely reversed. Because a son of God, meaning you're his anointed, God said to David, you are my son. So when you use the title Son of God, that's actually messianic. When you use Son of Man, that's the divine human being. So when Jesus is standing in front of Caiaphas and Caiaphas says, are you the Son of God? He's asking him, not are you God's son? He's saying, are you the Messiah? Jesus says, yes, and I will come back as that divine Son of Man and you stand judging me, I'll be judging you. Boom, that's what flipped the switch. What's the name of that book again? It's the Jewish Jesus, I think, by Daniel Boyarin, wow. B-O-Y-A-R-I-N. Phenomenal book. Well, I know that you two have just been yammering back and forth some good stuff, but, you know, it's made me very, very, very thirsty. I think we need to get some more Tell coffee. you what, why don't you go get some coffee and I'll order that book for you on Amazon while you're gone. Oh, bless your heart. Hurry, Bullwinkle, the show's about to start. I'm coming as fast as I can. Wave to 
Boris, Boris darling, what are you listening to? I am listening to Truth Barista. Are you colluding with this guy to bring down Washington? There is no collusion, only work of moose and squirrel. Then why collude with the Truth Barista? He is not colluding to bring anything down. He is not political apparatchik. He's Truth Barista. He's serving steamy cup of God's truth for average Yosef. No propaganda, just the truth with no interference from Moose and Squirrel. Friends, Romans, and countrymen, lend me your ears. What? I can't hear you. I've <laughs> lent you my ear. I know. Well, you know, but that's getting attention, isn't it? Yes, it is. But what are we getting the people's attention for? We want them to support the truth barista. Well, that is very, very true. Well, you know, we do have some needs, and we want people to understand our needs. We need people to understand that we want to get out further into our world. So That's right. they could take this podcast and link it to all their friends and family and church-going members, all that kind of stuff. Exactly. You can get to the website and get the RSS feed so that any Anytime we post a new episode, you get a notice. We want this podcast to go to your friends, to your church, to the governor of your state. Share it on Facebook. Share it in your emails. Get the word out there. But the second need we have, Truth Barista, because we need resources in order for us to maintain this Truth Barista broadcast, and we need people to help support us. Exactly. And by resources... We mean finances, okay? Shekels. That's right. Shekels, dollars, bucks, pound, yen, you know, all that stuff. Yeah, because we need to pay for the production costs and the website and all of these incidentals. And thank God our production costs are relatively low, but we do need to meet them. So if you can help us, please go to the website. You'll find exactly how to do it online on the lower right side of the website, or you can send an email to the Truth Barista at gmail.com, thetruthbarista at gmail.com, and I will get in touch with you and tell you how you can help us. Help us get this word out to the entire world, and that truly is mission. Spread the word and spread the finances here. And don't forget, all gifts are tax deductible. This is The Truth Barista, your link to how God defines our day. By the way, thanks for the gift of that book. I'm I'm going to look forward to reading it. But speaking about a book, the book of Revelation is absolutely incredible. In the 12th chapter, it talks about how Satan was so mad at Israel and so mad at really the church, he started to create war with them. Is that probably part of what anti-Semitism is all about? Well, let's talk about that. Let's bring that question up. Trevor, (laughs) anti-Semitism. It's kind of like a define the universe and give three examples kind of a situation because we're short on time, but talk to us. Now, something that I think it's real important to note of anti-Semitism is the Jewish people have been persecuted when they are the wealthiest people in a society. They've been persecuted when they're the poorest people of a society. They've been persecuted when they fit in with the community around them. They've been persecuted when they don't fit in with the community around them. Anti-Semitism, there's no logical, reasonable explanation for it in this world. 
world. I think that kind of uh, what you're alluding to, Larry, becomes real important. Every single instance that we ever have any recorded information, prophetic information that talks about the return of the Messiah, Yeshua, every time he comes back to a Jewish Jerusalem. That's what happens. In you mean he's not coming back to Rome or New York or Oslo or anything? He's actually coming back to Jerusalem. You didn't use St. Paul in there. That's a given. Okay, go ahead. <laughs> Yeah, and, and not, not just to Jerusalem, but Jerusalem filled with the Jewish people. This is where he returns to. If you read Zechariah chapter 12, it starts listing all the different family groups, and they're all Jewish, that the one whom they pierced, it says, and this is something that's written hundreds of years before Jesus was ever pierced. It says the one whom they pierced will come down to them during a time of great duress. But it's a Jewish Jerusalem. So we think about why anti-Semitism. Well, if our Lord... Jesus is coming back, and as you were saying, the, the Son of Man, and the one who all authority was given to in Daniel chapter 7. If this individual is going to come back, rule and reign, establish his kingdom, then what could the enemy do to slow this down? Well, if there's no Jewish people there, then he can't return to a Jewish Jerusalem, much like what's being said. So if you eliminate the Jewish people, we don't have a problem. If you keep the Jewish people out of the land of Israel, then that prophecy can't ever be fulfilled. And then if you keep them from the capital of Jerusalem, it cannot be fulfilled. So I think in all of these things, we see semblance and forms of anti-Semitism, whether it is the systematic elimination of the people, trying to expel them from Israel, or trying to expel them from Jerusalem. All of those things seem to be fighting against what God's planning on doing. You know, that's really fascinating because we've often talked about the same thing. To me, it's in Genesis 3, after the fall, the very first thing God does is he looks at the enemy and he says, guess what? You think you've one? Oh no, you're going down and you're going to be going down permanently here and it's going to come from the seed of the woman, what they call the proto-evangelion, which is the early gospel, the early gospel. Sounded like you swallowed your tongue there. <laughs> I think it was. It was kind of difficult. Anyway, so what's going to happen is the enemy has to prevent anything to forestall anything of his demise. And so he's going to the core person, Jesus, hence why Jesus was going to be killed as a baby, why Jesus's life was threatened during his ministry years, why he was crucified, and Jesus actually used the enemy's plan against him like a good judo master, and hence why after Jesus has ascended, now Satan is going after the Jewish people. Why? Because the Jewish people are still the core, the hub of his plan. Yeah, it's an opposition to the plan of God. Exactly. That explains why anti-Semitism occurs in any scenario, in any situation, and potentially in any part of the earth. So I have a $64,000 question to you, Truth Barista. Okay, let me get my catcher's mitt on here. Go! So you're making a great case for the importance of Israel. Then why is it that the majority of the church look the other way? <laughs> Trevor, you and and I could probably answer this quite well, but I will defer to you at this one. Unfortunately, historically, this is what's happened. This is what's developed. I, I've done some research into this. I have a theory on this, Jay, so don't uh, quote this as dogmatic, but it is a theory. In your humble opinion. <laughs> Correct. Yes. If you look at any form of Christian religious group that developed before 1948, you're much more likely to see what we call replacement theology superset 
professionism. Those are mighty big words there, son. You yeah. want to explain that? Yes. So older organizations, what happens is historically there has always been an emphasis on the imminent return of the Messiah, that he could return at any moment, any time. And before there was a nation state of Israel, the thought was, well, then if he can return at any moment at any time, but yet he's supposed to come back to a Jewish Jerusalem, maybe some of that stuff isn't literal. Maybe some of that stuff is more symbolic. Can I tag team on that? Yep. Okay, Larry, also what I want to say is there are a lot of prophecies about Israel that at the time when Israel was dispersed, going back to 135 AD, the Bar Kokhba revolt, a lot of people said, well, there's no Jewish state, the Jewish people are dispersed, Jerusalem is destroyed, so obviously if Jesus is coming back, the only way that these prophecies can be fulfilled is not literal, it has to do with spiritual Israel, and they picked up on some of Paul's wording, and they created created this replacement for Israel in these prophecies, hence the church. Yep. And that's where replacement theology got its start. Actually, if you look at it, religious organizations that develop close to 1948, if they did not have their doctrine finalized by that time, then all of a sudden they can see, oh, wait a second. God literally fulfills what he says he's going to do. Israel is a nation. Jesus could literally come back. And so, yeah, everything changed after that date. And isn't that funny that instead of just trusting the word of God, we look at the scenario around us and say, well, maybe he didn't mean what he said. But I'll tell you this about God, something that's made abundantly clear in his scriptures, God can't lie. And that sometimes is misunderstood. The idea of God can't lie sometimes is seen as, well, he's moral, so God doesn't do things that are immoral. God doesn't sin. And yes, of course that's true, but there's something bigger than that. If God says something, it happens. And God says, let there be light, there's light. If I tell you something, it might not happen, but God speaks reality into existence through his word. And so, unfortunately, part of replacement theology developed because we didn't trust that what God says will literally happen. And since then, we've learned what God says happens. See, I think it's really funny because there's this battle that we see in Bible studies. It's how much of this is literal and how much is this is figurative or metaphorical. And, and some people are saying, you're taking the Bible too literally. Well, in the case of many prophecies, some people are not taking those prophecies literal enough. And people have written off the book of Revelation. Well, the book of Revelation is based on literal prophecies from Daniel and from Isaiah and Ezekiel. In fact, Revelation has kind of been nicknamed the stolen book because you have to have a working knowledge of Judaism, its culture, and the prophecies in order for it to make sense. Otherwise, yeah, it does come across as just a bunch of pictures and stories. Okay, gentlemen, so I'm listening to you here, and we've had people come in from Big Brain University, and especially there's a Messianic congregation just down the road a little bit, and, and those guys come in. And what I'm kind of hearing is that Israel is kind of like the centerpiece, but that almost becomes an idol, doesn't it? Where Israel becomes so important that it seems like everything's about Israel, and maybe Yeshua Jesus takes a second place to Israel. Is it, am I off base here? You want to address that one, Trevor? Yeah, sure. You know, that is a reality to all of us. Unfortunately, we can elevate things above the Lord himself, in which case it can become an idol. We have a beautiful example of this in the Hebrew scriptures. You see, there's a story when the people of Israel are rebelling against God, something that uh, that you, we very rarely read about. And during this time in particular, God sends fiery 
serpents, the scripture says, snakes that come and bite the people of Israel and they start to die. What happens as a result of this is that the people go to Moses, they repent, Moses goes before God, God tells Moses, take a a serpent of bronze to make it out out of bronze, to put it on a bronze pole, and then he says, and whoever looks on this pole will not die. And so this happens, the people of Israel see this pole, when they look upon it, they don't die. It's a strange story and almost in itself seems like an idol. And later in 2 Kings chapter 18, it actually becomes an idol where Hezekiah sees this thing and sees that the people are burning incense to it and calling it Nehashtan. And as the scripture says, he had to destroy the serpent that Moses made because really people were worshiping it. Interesting, there's a third mention of this bronze serpent. The section of scripture that most Christians are abundantly familiar with probably because of sporting events and big signs is John 3.16. But leading up to that in John chapter 3 verse 14, it says, just as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so too must the Son of Man be lifted up that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. So this bronze serpent, this snake, a symbol of sin, put in bronze as a symbol of it really being refined, dealt with, right? This was always pointing forward to what God was going to do. It probably even looked a little bit like a cross. And it was always pointing forward to what Jesus was going to do on the cross and putting to death sin. And so as long as it pointed to him, it was powerful and it had a powerful effect. But once it in itself became the exclusive focus as opposed to whom it pointed to, even this good thing of God had to be destroyed. That is fascinating because in the past, what we've run into is anti-Semitism, what we're seeing happen profoundly in our day is more of a philo-Semitism, a love for Semitic things, specifically the Jewish people in Israel. But you're right. If we don't see what those signs are pointing at, such as Israel becoming a nation, the Jews being regathered, which is fundamental to the prophetic verses, God says, I'm going to restore my people to their land, and shortly behind that, I'm coming back to be their king. So he brings them back to their land in 1948. He gives them their city in 67. And so we're looking around going, what's coming up next? However, you can easily move from philo-Semitism, a love for the Jewish people in Israel, into idolatry where you're actually worshiping the Jewish people and worshiping Israel. We need to remember that we stand shoulder to shoulder, Gentile and Jew, together with the Messiah, and that we are there. We need to support them. Paul basically says in his word, we need to support those who have given us such a great treasure But we shouldn't fall into worship of that. As long as we keep that balanced, we're sitting all here waiting shoulder to shoulder. Come, Lord Jesus, bring that kingdom. Restore all things to the way it was. Well, that's really answered some of the Gentiles who want to be Jewish. Right? They wear all the things that the Jewish people wear, trying to be Jewish. Mm -hmm. That isn't the point. The point is it's pointing to Jesus. So that was such a great explanation, Trevor. It is funny, too, and tell me if you've experienced this, Trevor, that people adopt these outward practices, and yet being Gentile doing so offends Jewish people because they look at it and say, that's not your stuff. Yeah. That's our stuff. Yep. Now, we appreciate you wanting to come to us and learn and build relationships with us, but don't rip off our stuff. Don't culturally appropriate. Yeah, and it can appear that way. I generally don't think that's the individual's hearts that do that type of thing. But yes, it can definitely be perceived that way. You know, to a Jewish person who is, you know, vehemently opposed 
to Jesus as the Messiah. Can It can look like somebody trying to dress up or look like another nationality, culture, something that could even be offensive to them. So yeah, I think that it's important that when we do these things, that the things that we do, that we understand that it does point to Jesus. And we have to understand too, and I keep coming back to this, Paul said that we've been grafted, we Gentiles have been grafted into the commonwealth of Israel. Israel and the Jewish people haven't been grafted into the church. So if we can get a hold of that, that can help kind of unlock hearts and keep it out of that anti-Semitic realm. Trevor, I have a question. Jeremiah 31, 31 through 34 has to do with a covenant that was given to Israel only. And somebody said, came in here the other day and said, see, Gentiles really aren't given that covenant, even though later on they're grafted in. What, what do you say to that? And it specifically says, I encourage people to read it, it specifically says that there's a covenant between God and Israel. In this covenant, he actually says that he is going to write his law in our hearts and that he is going to forgive our sins. And so this becomes a essential covenant. Without this covenant, there is no possibility of rebirth into eternal life in the presence of God. So this ultimately is what the Gentiles become grafted into. They're grafted into this specific covenant. And what a blessing. While people love the Mosaic covenant, and they should, it's from God, it's a good thing. It does not offer eternal life. This is the covenant that offers eternal life, and it's the one that we should most seek. And what's fascinating is God says, it, just to put this in perspective, he's saying, now pretend God is talking to a group of Jews and a group of Gentiles, and he's talking to the Jews, and he says exactly what you said, that this is the entranceway into eternal life, and then he turns to the Gentiles and says, and guess what, guys? You're not second best, but... <laughs> You are coming into this covenant that I'm making with them. I'm not making a new covenant with Gentiles and telling Jews they can come into it. And what's fascinating is this covenant kicked off at what we call the Day of Pentecost, or in the Bible it's Shavuot, the Feast of Weeks. It kicked off then. It's been going for 2,000 years, but it won't reach its fullness until Jesus comes back. And at that point, all Israel will have a new heart, a new spirit. God's spirit will be upon him, and his law will be written on their hearts. It's a now and a not yet type of a thing, but it is the only covenant that's in effect. Well, let me bring that back. The Abrahamic covenant is still in effect. The Noah covenant is still in effect. The original creation covenant is still in effect. The Davidic covenant is, a, but the new covenant is, in a sense, the embodiment of them all. I just love that. Truth Barista, you're so good. You brought somebody like Trevor Rubenstein into the coffee house for these last two conversations. I'm telling you. I didn't bring him good. in. I lured him in. <laughs> you you <No>. lured <laughs> him in. Well, why don't we find out, Trevor? How do people get to know you better? Is there a website they can go to and Google your name or what? Email you or contact you to yeah. speak or anything? Yes. Send you a donation. Yes. Yeah, so my, my email address at work is trubenstein. That's R-U-B-E-N-S-T-E-N-S-T-E-N-S-T-E-N-S-T-E-N-S-T-E-N-S-T-E-N-S-T-E-N-S-T-E-N-S-T-E-N-S-T-E-N-S-T-E-N-S-
easy name to spell, so thank you for that, Truth Barista. But it's K-E-L-S-S-E-E is how she spells it. And then also, in addition to that, yes, my testimony is available online at two websites. One of them is called I Met Messiah, and the other is I Found Shalom. Number are they of, both .coms? Uh, yes, correct. And they are both places to where we have hundreds of Jewish people who have come to faith in Jesus and their testimony. Say that again. Yes, so it's imetmessiah.com and ifoundshalom.com. Truth Barista, I want to know if you're Googleable. <laughs> you can't even say it. You're Googleable? Do you know who is Googleable? No. God. So let's Googleable him right now. Hold on. Heavenly Father, we ask that you would bless Trevor now in his ministry, bless chosen people in their ministry. And Father, if there's anybody out there who has been touched by your Holy Spirit during this podcast, we pray now that you would direct them at the right time, at the right moment, in the right way to find what you want to give them. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. This is Jay, your Truth Barista. Thanks for listening to the Truth Barista podcast.